I want to invite you to turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to begin a study uh, that I hope will conclude not too far in the distant future uh, from Hebrews 4 beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I hope uh, to do the introduction to what I would call the exposition or explanation of this text later. I really put the the exposition together. I was getting ready as I was typing. I was started working on the introduction, and the introduction kept getting longer and longer. And I realized that I had more in the introduction than I did in the sermon. Uh, so that's why you're getting the introduction today, because I do think the, this lays the right foundation for what's ahead. I don't. I don't want my grandchildren to be afraid of me at all. I don't think they are. Uh, I don't want them to be. I don't want them to have anything to fear about me, but I don't think they fully know me. That is, they know me as well as children can know uh, a person. Uh, And they have the image of me from the time we spend together, the things we share, the things we say. But it can't be ever the full picture of a person. But we make known. But I don't want them to be afraid of getting to know me, uh, to, to, to spending time with that proposition, to try to know me better. In the same way, we have nothing to fear from our Heavenly Father. We don't have anything to fear in drawing near to Him. He invites us to do that. Don't be afraid of drawing near to God, and He'll draw near to you. That's His invitation. And the Bible is the means by which that happens today. That's how we get to know Him. And you don't have anything to fear in the Bible. Open up your Bible and read it, study it. And parents need to be teaching their children and we need to remind each other, this is the means. Let's draw near to God. Open the book and get to know him. Don't be afraid of your Bible. Even if you don't fully understand everything in it, in the same way you may not fully understand a person, but you get to know those that you love better and better. And the Bible is living and active. Because God himself has placed his own character and self within the pages of the message. It's how we get to know him. It's how we draw near to him. It's a book like no other because it's the book that tells us about our maker. It tells us about God and in doing so, it reveals who we are. It makes known what it means to be made in the image of God and what God always intended for us to be. And he himself makes himself known in the message of his son that he has revealed to us by coming to the earth in the form of a human being, living and dying and teaching and leaving behind the good news that we share with each other today. The Bible is something then that is precious to believers I want you to know that I believe the Bible is the word of our creator. It's the word of God. That's what it claims for itself. And that's what I believe about it. As does this gentleman over here who's one of our shepherds. And all of our shepherds here believe this book to be the revelation of God himself. And this church stands 
for that truth. That is, that's what brings us here. That's why we open the book and study it. And you should sit there and expect to hear a message from God. Not that I'm inspired, but that I'm going to take time with this book and I'm going to learn something that God has made known and share that with you. And that's why you'll hear me making references and reading from it so that you can be convinced. Yes, this is what God is saying to me. Not what, the, what Mark Mosley is saying, not what a preacher is saying, but what God is making known to me as, as I receive it into my heart. That's the purpose. And that's why, knowing that, I will never speak against, willingly or knowingly, what the Bible speaks for. And I will never speak for, knowingly and willingly, what the Bible speaks against. Can't do that, because the Bible is the Word of God. And I want to impress that on you this morning as we think about what the Scriptures mean to us. Peter said that men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. Paul says the Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3 are inspired or breathed by God. They're to be received in that way because Jesus promised these men, in fact, that that's what would happen. In John 16 and verses 13 and 14, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And that's why the Spirit himself is referred to in Scripture as the Spirit of Christ. Not that he's not a distinct individual, but the Spirit has made known to us the message of Christ, the truth about Christ. And so it is that he's referred to as this Spirit of Christ. In the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, and in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk with God, just as you actually do walk, and you excel, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's where we stand. Of course, we receive the instructions as from the Lord Himself. He shows us how to walk. He teaches us how to live. And we yearn to know what it is He wants us to do. That's why we open up the book. The Scriptures make known to us what it is that God would have us to be and do. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul urges Timothy to take the truth that had been entrusted to him and entrust it to other faithful men who would then in turn teach others also. That's what I'm about today. That's what we're about in our Bible classes. That's what mothers and, and fathers are about around the kitchen table with their children as they open up the Bible, which I hope you're doing regularly. It's what we're about whenever we take the message of the book that we've received from those who came before us and we pass on to those who are coming up yet. We're doing exactly what Paul told Timothy. Take the message, entrust it to faithful people who will then entrust it to others. God has involved human beings in the spreading of this message. Well, how do we do it? 
Well, we pray for enlightenment. Of course we pray. We're praying people. We believe God is with us. But ultimately in that same chapter in verse 15, he tells uh, Timothy, look, don't wrangle, he says in verse 14, about the things that are uh, about useless words. Don't get caught up in things that are not important. He says, you be diligent to show yourself as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And so what we're about is trying to study, to know, and understand the great message of this book to pass it on. It's as complex as God is complex. So, no, I don't expect that I have the full picture and understanding and richness as I continue to delve into it. The more I get to know about him and about myself and what I need to be and do. But the great messages of the Bible, the great principles of Scripture are there for the taking. And our brother Mark just spoke about one, to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's one of the great sweeping principles. That's not really hard to grasp. And that's why there are the things that are connecting with it. How can there be bitterness among us? If we know him, if we know who we are in him, how can we remain? Uh, how can we be divided? How can we shake our fist over things that we know are not central to what God is doing in the world? Now let's go back to the book and let it enlighten us, and let's learn about God and learn about his character and trust him. You can trust him. Of course, there are commands to be obeyed. No, no Christian doubts that. We're not afraid to, uh, of the fact that there are truths and things we're to do, things that we're not to do. Can't imagine anything other than that as we read scriptures, but it's bigger than that. It's the story that makes God known to us. Himself, His character, His person, and makes us understand through His Son who we are to be. And this book then shapes us. It changes us. It transforms us. It has power over us as we hear it and take it into our very nature. That's what the Bible means when it says, have the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word written on your heart. Writing God's word on your heart. What does that mean? It means making it part of your very nature. Letting it become, if you will, part of your spiritual DNA. You know, DNA is a marvelous uh, thing. It's a, it's a wonderful, uh, uh, marvelous scientific discovery to understand. And we look at DNA and you're able to tell so much about a person from looking at that code that God has inscribed within them. And one of the things, DNA, that we very early on were able to learn from it, you can tell someone's heritage. You can tell their parentage. You can say, this person is the father, this is the mother. How do you know? Well, we've looked at the DNA and, and we're able to tell. And I want to suggest to you that you can tell uh, that God is a person's father by looking at what's in his heart and what you're going to find there is the Word of God, the, the inscription of God's nature and character that's made known in this book that that person has received gladly and inscribed within himself and, and in so doing becomes more like God as he allows that process to take place. That's what's happening. In the book of Acts, 
And so I want you to have confidence in the Bible, and I want you to understand why we're about the Bible, why we preach it, why we teach it, and why, more importantly, you need to be in your homes and in your lives listening to this precious book. In Acts 2, Paul stands up, or Peter stands up, rather, with the other apostles. They're filled with the Spirit, and they begin preaching. They begin speaking to the people about the truth that God has raised up Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand as both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard the message, they heard the words, they were pierced by this two-edged sword. And so just keep that in your mind as we get to it in the God-enabling next lesson. But they were pierced to the heart by what they heard. And they said, brethren, what do we do? And Peter tells them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. I'll have more to say about that in a moment, about repentance and what that's a call to, being baptized in his name by the power of what's happened and to be united with him. And 3,000 people that believed the message were baptized into Christ and united with him that very day. Acts chapter 3, there's a lame man that gets healed by Peter as he's on his way to the temple. And it's an amazing miracle that takes place because the man had been born lame from his mother's womb. And the people in the city knew him well. And so it was an incredible thing that had happened. And as you come to Acts chapter 4, it says, as they were speaking to the people. See, they're still speaking it's the message that's being, uh, that is having its effect. The priest and the captain and the temple guard and Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, what, what's got them upset? That, that a man who is lame is walking? That, that, isn't, that isn't what got them upset. It's what they're saying. It's what they're speaking, that Jesus, in fact, was risen from the dead. And that many, many of those who heard the message, verse 4 says, they heard the message, they believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of a high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power... Or in what name have you done this? What, what power? What name? What, what, in that name, what is the power behind what you've done? In verse 8, Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which, is, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. Peter says, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. Now, I want you to understand 
It's not an incantation. You say this phrase, and by saying this phrase, it has some kind of uh, mystical or magical force behind it. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not the point. He's saying Jesus through us is doing this. We're doing it by his power. God raised him from the dead and he is alive and he is with us and he is working through us and it's Jesus who is doing it. The point is the miracle was evidence of the message's truth that God has raised Jesus from the dead and he's alive and at the right hand of God, that he's a living Lord. That's the point. If the miracle was genuine, then Jesus is alive. That's what he's saying there. Well, in verse 15, after they had interrogated them a little more, it says, when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what do we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now listen, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak, to speak no longer to any man in this name. Look, the miracle has been done, but we got to stop this from spreading. So we're going to go tell them, don't do any more miracles. I didn't want their, it isn't the miracles that are bothering them. That's not what's concerning. That's not what's spreading. That's not what's having the impact. He said, we're going to tell them, don't speak anymore in this name. They wouldn't be silenced. We, we won't be silenced, brethren. We will keep speaking. If you want to know how the church grows and how people draw near to God, how we're shaped, it's by speaking the truth in the name of Jesus, who is the living Lord. And what they're saying to the, look, you can keep performing miracles. If you want to do good deeds, keep doing your good deeds. I want to tell you, no one's ever going to object about this church doing good deeds. No one in, the, in our country, I don't care who they are, what their view is, they're never going to be upset with us going out and doing good deeds. And we should go out and do good deeds. But we're going to do good deeds in the name of Jesus, the living Lord, whose word is here, who we stand with, and who we insist, this is what we will be and do. And we speak in his name. It's Christ the Lord that we're acting in his name, by his power. And when you speak in his name, that's when people are going to have an objection. That's when you're going to have people saying, oh no, that we cannot have. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. But when they summoned them and commanded them, what? Not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I want to say this. You can take my word for it. I'll be glad to talk to you about it afterwards. But, but I'm going to tell you the scriptures teach the miracles were performed by the inspired men of the first century to confirm they were the messengers of God 
miracles of that nature. They're not being performed today. I'll be glad to talk with you about that if you want to do that further. But I'm telling you, it isn't necessary that we have miracles today because we have what we need. We have this. We have this. We have the living and abiding Word of God. And we're still speaking and acting in the name of Jesus. We're still bearing testimony. We're still spreading the message, doing what God intended to do. And we ourselves... Though we're not eyewitnesses, we bear witness by repeating the story to the truth God raised his son from the dead. And in all we do, in word or deed, what does Colossians 3 say? All that you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. All we do, this church, which is the body of Christ here at this place, we bear witness to the resurrected Lord. That's what we just did. And Christians have been doing it through the centuries. Whenever we take this cup and eat this bread, we are doing it in the name of Jesus, testifying God has raised his son from the dead. When individuals by faith say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, he is the living Lord. I want to follow him. I want to be united with him. And they're buried in the waters of baptism. They're testifying again in the act itself. We do it in the name of Jesus. We are buried with him. We are raised with him, Romans 6 says, to walk in a new life. We rehearse again the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the power of it is a living Lord, that's why we know it has power. And as we, we are transformed by the message, as we become different, as we become more like Jesus, that transformation that takes place through drawing near to God through the book is a witness that Christ is alive in the world today through us. And so Hebrews 4 and verses 12 and 13 talks about this living and active, sword of the Spirit. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in more detail, that particular passage. But before we do that, I want to look at another text in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, great chapter to make this point that I want you to see regarding the power of, of God's Word. Paul is at Ephesus. He's been going all about the ancient world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he comes to the city of Ephesus. And in verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the, away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Look, I want you to just quickly make this point. Again, he's reasoning, he's speaking. Not everybody's believing, and not everybody's going to believe our testimony. And there were those who spoke against them, and there will be those who speak against us. But we're going to keep on speaking. And we're going to keep on testifying Christ is Lord. And then in 
verse 11, it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons which were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits went out. God was performing miracles. Please understand, it wasn't Paul. It was God testifying to the people through the miracles that Paul was his man. That's the point. It's not magic being done. It's God acting to confirm his messenger. That's what's taking place here. That what Paul is saying, that Christ is risen and his Lord is true. But it wasn't magic. Look, there's no such thing as magic. Not the kind of magic where there are powers that are at work in the world today. Only the power that we give to such things. There's only one God. That's what the Bible is all about. That's the whole story of the Bible. There is a true and living God. One. There are no other gods except satanic gods. That is, there are other gods. The Bible talks about them, and those gods have power. But it's the power we give to them. You understand? We can create a God. I saw an article this morning about that in California, they're, they're, they're instituting, uh, trying to counter the Christian theocide. That is, we've killed off all these other gods. And we that. To the extent we've killed them, we can give God the glory because they need to be killed. But they're trying to, to reinvent and reinvigorate the Aztec gods, and they're teaching the children to chant to these gods. They want to, they want to set them alongside these gods to whom thousands were human sacrifices were offered. I want to tell children included. I want to tell you something. And there were gods like that in the Bible. That's a powerful God, isn't it? It's a powerful God that would cause a man to take his child and lay it on, a, a, on outstretched burning arms. That's a powerful God. That God has a lot of influence on a person if he causes a person to sacrifice his own child and give its life. That's power over that person. But I want to tell you this, it was only the power of Satan in the lie that was told that influenced that person to do such a thing. And that power then was caused the person to create a God to whom he then gave power over him. That's how it works. But the God itself is not a God at all. And that's worth always remembering. There's no magic. There's no magic in Christianity. And there's no magic in the world. Somebody comes along, you know, I hope no, none of you, that, you know, I, I, I've been sleeping with a, a pyramid under my bed, and I really feel good. You know, I'm invigorated. Pyramids must have some power. Some. No, they don't. It, things like that. Well, pyramids, you know, the Egyptians. Yeah, the Egyptians were influenced by Satan to worship false gods and ascribe false powers, and people still do that today. All kinds of mysticism at work in our society. What I'm telling you is the Bible says there's one God, and there's an evil being, I believe he's real, he's Satan. And the powers in the world today that you're seeing are the influence of Satan in the world. You don't have anything to fear from them. Well, I can remember when I was in high school, I was, I'm a doodler, I'm a terrible artist, but I doodle. And one of the things I do sometimes is just draw stars. That's the extent of my art 
artistic ability. I can draw those little stars. And, and I had a teacher, my Latin teacher walked by and she said, you need to close those stars down at the corner because that's a, that's a, that's a let's evil in, in. You don't, you, you need to. And I just looked up at her and said, I'm not at all afraid of those powers. They have no power over me. And I just started making stars, leaving them deliberately uh, to her horror, leaving the corners uh, undone. Uh, now, they had a power over her. And I'm sure that she would never have made such a star knowingly and not closed the power because whatever was influencing her life uh, had caused her to put uh, some stock in that. But I'm telling you, it's got no power. None, ex unless you give it to to. To let you, unless you give it power. And Satan will have no power over you unless you give him power. Please understand that. It wasn't magic when Paul said, by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so in verse 17, there was a big uproar in the city. And, and you find... Uh, as the gospel was spreading between Jews and Greeks and the fear of the Lord was being magnified, God demonstrated, you know, there were these sons of Sceva who had, uh, were going from place to place. They were sons of a priest, of an influential priest. And they're called exorcists. And what that means is they were religious charlatans, a lot like the ones today. That's what they were. They believed in such things. And they thought Paul was practicing some kind of magic art and using a magical phrase when he said in the name of Jesus that that, that somehow had power. And so they thought, if Paul can do it, we can do it. And they tried to cast out a demon uh, using Paul's name and Jesus' name. And the demon said, I know who Paul is and I certainly know who Jesus is, but I don't know who you are. And and. He gave those guys an awful beating and they're running out of the house naked and all the people are seeing and God exposed them for the charlatans that they were. But the point that I want you to see, it wasn't, none of this is magic. That's not what's happening. And what happened when it became known to the Jews and Greeks that lived in Ephesus, fear fell upon them in the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And many of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted them up, the price of them, and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The word is prevailing and people are believing the message and it's having an impact on the city. So much so that Demetrius, a silversmith in verse 24, who made silver shrines to Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. But not only is there a danger in, of, that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. 
And a big riot happens, and you can read the rest of the story. But the point that I want you to see in reading that is here's a guy that says, look, we need to stop Paul because of what he's saying. And people are believing what he's saying. And what he's saying is there's no no God at all uh, except for the God who is in heaven that's upon whose right hand the Lord Jesus sets. That's the only God there is. There are no gods that you can make with human hands. And we've been making those gods, and people have been buying them and believing them and going to our temples, and, and our city is economic prosperity depends upon it. We've got to stop what Paul is saying. Now, on a side note, I want to tell you what Paul didn't do. He didn't organize a march. He didn't get the Christians together and go out and and stand in front of the temple tradesmen's doors and say, we're not letting anybody go in here and buy any of these idols. Those are false gods. We're stopping that. They didn't go to the temple where the temple prostitutes were there and practicing the religion in that way. And they didn't, again, they didn't march and say, this is degrading to women. They didn't march and say, this is immoral. We got to stop this immorality in our city because God will judge it if we don't. And let's all get our hands up. We got to stop people from entering the temple. They didn't do that. They preached the message. And they persuaded people to put their faith in Jesus. And when people put their faith in Jesus, they left behind the practices of the world. They quit going to the temple where there were no gods. They quit practicing immorality because they trusted in Jesus and they began to be transformed by the message that they heard and believed. And brethren, that's what we need to do. That's how we do it. You don't stop people from practicing immorality by trying to in some way force them uh, Well, let's pass a law and tell them they can't do this or do that. I'm not worried about that. I'm just here to tell you that the true and living God made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one God. He's seated above the heavens. He he is not at all like the creation. He made the creation. The earth is his footstool. He came into the world in the person of Jesus and demonstrated his love for us by giving him as a sacrifice for sins and raising him up from the dead. And those who trust in him, God offers life and the promise, one day I'm going to make all things right that are wrong in the world today. That the darkness that Satan has brought into the world and that continues, all of its consequences, I promise you that I'm going to make it right. And if you just trust me, I'll give you life. I'll return back all that's been taken, all you've been robbed of. And I'll give you life forever. That's his promise. How do we learn about all of this? This book, the living and abiding word of God, that's where we learn it. That's how we learn as we learn who Jesus is and we say, I want to follow him. I want to, I want to be like him. I want to love as he loved. I want to, to, to be shaped in his image. How do I do that? This book will tell you. It'll tell you the whole story of God's working among mankind to show himself and to let men draw near to him. 
The religious charlatans, they're going to be exposed one day. Those that don't want him, they won't have him. Those that say, I want nothing to do with Jesus, I don't want to follow him, I don't want to learn about him, they, they don't have to. God doesn't work that way. They'll, they won't have him. But if you want Jesus, you want the life that he offers, you do believe in him, then he invites you to come. Rehearse today the great demonstration of God's love. Be buried with him in the waters of baptism, that covenantal act by which our sins are forgiven and we're raised to walk as new creatures. That's his invitation to you. He invites you to come and have it. And we invite all who would trust in him to do so while we stand and sing the invitation song.